to People Like Us, a podcast for and about third culture kids everywhere. I'm Jen Mohindra. I'm also a TCK and I have a Facebook group for TCK adults called, unsurprisingly, People Like Us. Hello and welcome to this very special edition of People Like Us. We have a few special reasons going on today. We have the 25th episode and it's also our Christmas edition. And on top of that, I'm absolutely delighted to have with me as my guest today, Ruth Van Rieken. Ruth, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm fine, Jen. Thanks for having me. It's really good to see you again. My pleasure. So Ruth, it's become a tradition now that on my podcast episodes, I generally leap straight into the first question, uh, which I will do with you as well. Um, and that is, would you like to tell me about where you grew up? I would love to. I was born and raised in Kano, Nigeria. Perhaps one twist of that is my father was an American who was born and raised in Persia, which of course has become Iran. So in my lineage, I already had some international parts that I didn't know about that certainly shaped my life. But my parents uh, were working in Nigeria. So I was born in a British hospital then because of course it was colonial days in Nigeria at that point. And I lived there till I was 13. But when you say, tell me about the place you grew up, is that what you would like? Or just the experience, how was it for you? A bit of both. Okay. I think when I grew up, life was so normal that I didn't even know there was anything of a particular story to it. Mm -hmm. um, I was in a family, ultimately had six children. My parents went and taught school every morning and I rode my bike, I had friends and life was just the way life was. I loved going to market. I loved uh, the openness of my life. I loved climbing my trees. When I was six, I did what all my other peers, the expat peers that I grew up with did. We went to boarding school. And that was kind of a big moment because that was kind of your sign that you were growing up. Now you were big enough to go to boarding school. Oh, I had to some terms with it later. But at the time, it was like, oh, you know. And my parents were very positive about it because, of course, that was the mythology then that as long as the parents were positive and um, got you ready and, and were not negative and didn't show you that they were sad, that the kids would be fine. And so that was all fine, except that I was 39 and had to go back and think about that again. Because um, I think now probably to be six and away from your parents and seven is pretty young. Mm. But then uh, we came to the U.S for third grade when I was eight. And I remember the day my mother turned around when we were in the car and she said, would you kids like to stay home if I taught you when we go back to Nigeria? And I was very excited about that because I really liked my family. I liked my home. 
I think I like the freedom that a home gives versus an institution where I was always worried about breaking the rules and being in trouble, you know, because there are a lot more rules in the school than there are at home. And so to me, a great good fortune of my life was that I had the next four years on the back of my mother's classroom with my siblings and she wrote out our lessons. But that meant that I certainly, my friends were much more Nigerian than they were expats because the other expat kids were all at school. And it also made me a little different than my peers even then, because, you know, I, I knew that we were sort of regarded as the crybabies because we were too um, chicken or we weren't strong like them to be away from our parents. Uh, I didn't understand all of that at the time dynamically, but um, I felt it when we would meet. So in a way, even at that point, I wasn't quite in the in-group of my peers in, um, that I grew up with. But honestly, it, it, to me, it was a happy life. It was a good life. I, you know, it was very hot. It was sub-Saharan and we had Harmattan would come every year. That was just part of this wonderful dynamic of smelling home and all these good things. So I would say that those years were um, strong years for me. Mm -hmm. So born in Nigeria and off to board school at a very young age. Very young. <laughs> and how long did you stay in Nigeria? I stayed there until I was 13. In that era, two things. First, we were Americans in a British colony, so we wouldn't have been expected to go to the British school, right? I think about it now, why didn't I just go to school with the students my parents were teaching, but they were teaching in Hausa. So the expectation for most third culture kids is that one day you will repatriate, you will go quote unquote home. Mm -hmm. which is why then we had, from my parents' perspective, and what was just common then, um, was you had to have a curriculum that would match when you went home. So that was why we specific um, experience. So when I was 13, it was time to, quote unquote, go home again. And we came back and I was 13. And of course, that's a terrible year in life anyway mm. but it's a really terrible year when you are supposed to be like the other kids you look like them and you talk like them even uh, I had an, an American accent but you have no idea what's going on and so for me when I got to the school I just assumed people would like me I was used to people liking me mm. I always felt I fit in you know, I got along with people. And suddenly I realized kids were talking about me behind my back and they were laughing at me. I didn't know the right clothes. I had no idea about the music. I mean, it was pre-internet days, of course, since mm -hmm. I'm 75 now. And it's like they were speaking other languages, all the sports that I knew. Uh, I could play soccer, but nobody in the U.S. was playing soccer then. I had no idea how they could call this game that they're throwing a ball around, call that football. I thought that's not football, that's handball or something. Yeah. So I had to uh, rapidly change. And people said to me, where are you from? And I said, Nigeria. 
Well, that didn't go very well because the first thing they said is you don't look like it. And so I thought, oh, I guess I'm not from Nigeria, but then where am I from? We were living in Chicago. It was my mother's place where she grew up. My grandmother was there and so forth. So that was a really, really bad year for me. And so when I started high school a year later, my parents went back to Nigeria, but because there were no high schools then in any American uh, curriculum, we didn't have the international schools. They were, the ones that were there were ending at eighth, eighth grade at that point. So I stayed with my grandmother in high school in Chicago and my parents went back to Nigeria. And again, I had a wonderful home. My aunt, my grandma were terrific, but I didn't have my parents. And another great good fortune in my life compared to many kids of my era, not only was I in a home rather than many kids went away again to a boarding school, but I also was able to stay with the friends that I had made through the years, we'd always come back to my grandma's house. So I would know some kids from church or the neighborhood. And so I had a permanent American home as well as a permanent African home. And compared to the kind of um, disruption and relocation so many have known, um, I've often thought if I had so much solidity in my life, how in the world does anybody cope um, with the, the multiple moves many have when I had to process later on in life, you know, the effect of them just, I say the small amount of moves. I mean, of course they're significant too, but mm. not to the degree so many have. Yeah, and, and that one that you describe of moving at the age of 13, um, from, from speaking with many TCKs, that is, seems to be notoriously the, the tricky age to move and a lot of people have experienced difficult moves at that age you're you know onset of puberty teenage years um you've got all of that going on as well as all the difficulties you described of having moved to the new place and, and not feeling like you belonged i would say right i think that's where a lot of shame comes in mm -hmm. uh, many people i think are like me and you feel shame for who you are. It took me a lot of years to understand that word um, because I would say, well, I felt guilty that I wasn't a certain way. And someone came to me afterwards and he said, you're not really talking about guilt. Guilt is for something you do wrong. And there's a healthy shame. And, you know, you can say sorry and have forgiveness and go on. But he said, shame is for who you are, that something's wrong with the essence of me. Somehow I was made wrong or I am wrong. And so we don't need forgiveness for that, we need grace. But when he said that, I spent the weekend crying and I thought, um, I think that was the feeling like I should, why I should be able to know all these things the other kids know. I should be able to figure this life out. Everybody else is figuring it out and I'm over here in the corner, not understanding what's going on. And so I think, that was really probably um, a factor I didn't understand was developing for me that somehow I'm so different or that something's wrong with me per se that I just can't get it. So we pick up different ways we cope. I became the chameleon. I'm gonna learn how to do this. Mm -hmm. And other people become screamers. Um, before you tell me I don't fit, I'm not gonna fit. 
and I'm going to let you know I don't fit and I don't want to fit. I don't ever want to be like you. A lot of kids seem to have that when they try to repatriate, repatriate because again, I was looking like everybody else. So it was pre-integration days in the U.S. then. So basically our schools were pretty uh, much, the look was pretty much the same for whatever school you would be in because there was still a lot of segregation in the schools, mm -hmm. even if not officially, it, you know, by the way it was. And some kids just quit trying. They, they think I'm just gonna be safe. And so they don't dare enter the scene. And some kids just seem to do fine. They maybe get into a sport, they do something and they seem to make that. But for me, I tried to hide it, but still. And so in one way I had a very successful high school I had fun, I had friends, I got involved. I was the class vice president. I got an award when I was a senior, but when I was going up to get it, I had this feeling, if you knew who I really was, or if you mm. knew who I really am, yeah. you wouldn't. <laughs> so it's like, I faked you, but something inside says, and that might not be so good either because, um, but anyway, we cope how we have to cope. We make, that's why I think often when we're adults, we have to go back and sort things through a bit and figure out what, you know, and it's not just TCKs. People have to do that no matter their life story. But for us, uh, at least for me, I didn't have a name for myself or any understanding of my story. So it took me maybe longer than some people. I don't know. Mm. And you know, that tricky age of 13, 14. Yes, it's tricky for us as TCKs, particularly if we've had a move then, but it's a tricky mm -hmm. age for everybody, really. It's a tricky age for everybody. <laughs> when I did my very first public talk way back in, I don't know, maybe 87, um, I had done a survey of adult TCKs because people as I was sort of getting into this, people were sending me surveys to prove to me that there was no issue, that kids were fine. And I realized all the surveys were being done in high school and college. And then in high school and college, I would have answered the same way because I was living in this place. I was fine, everything was fine, you know, no big deal. And so then I had done the survey. I decided I would look at only people who had finished college and then up until whatever age. So I had about 300 people from 22 to 75. And it was a very interesting, um, when I plotted it out, it was interesting demographically, the different kinds of separations and all sorts of things. But anyway, I used some of those stories in my talk. And the next day, the speaker, I felt kind of cut me down with like, that's, you know, it's still no big. He says, every 13 year old has a re-entry crisis. It's called adolescence. And I thought, yeah. oh, that's true. But then when you put it together with, you know, this kind of a major cultural move where you don't know anything, because usually kids learn at least the rules of how you do life in a place as kids. And then you get to adolescence and you test them and you, you know, you maybe have all these issues of trying to figure out how I fit because every single person in the world has to figure out where they belong and so forth. But when you were raised in a group that pretty much is like you value wise and you know you've been there a long time you you grow up a little more intuitively who's us and who's them 
anyway, it's been an interesting experience and all of it's taught me all kinds of things and given me a most interesting life. For sure. So on that, you, you just mentioned, touched on briefly, um, a sense of belonging. Now, having moved from Nigeria, um, although having the, the boarding school experience, but then the homeschooling, when, when you had the time in the States living with your, your grandparents and being raised by um, relatives other than your parents, where did you feel like you belonged at that point? I always had a strong, strong sense of belonging in my family, uh -huh. uh, not only to my nuclear family, but because my aunt and my grandmother were so kind, so I was living with them, but my father's sister, who was of course another aunt, had grown up with him in Iran. And she was very intuitively aware of this TCK, um, not misfitting, she had been a terrible misfit. Uh, her mother had died when she was 13 or 14. So she had been sent back to the States and she lived with a family that was not family. It was not a good experience for her. So she worked, I think, extremely hard to um, have us to her home. Somehow that she understood what the story was, even though we had no language for it. Mm -hmm. That she made sure she always would buy me something that was kind of stylish so I could look a little bit more normal. And, um, you know, in that way. So in the family, and because she didn't also, my grandparents are buried in Iran, so I never met them. And so she didn't have her parents. And my other aunt, who was from my mom's side, it was just the two of them. So we kind of joined both sides of the family in all the family gatherings. And we kind of became one clan. So that was without question mm -hmm. uh, an enormously important thing for me. But then I also had, like I said, the stability of these friends and to this day, I have um, probably call every week with one of the friends from that time in my life. So I had an amazingly um, more solid background than many, many, many TCKs. And I still yeah. had to sort it out. But those were the places or probably like some of the anchors for me, the mm -hmm. anchors of the relationship. Plus, I had this one visible home. 5843 is what we would call it. That was the number of my grandma's house. Mm -hmm. And my mother had moved there when she was four and we didn't sell it till she was 86. So it was the family anchor. So those places were belonging. But I think by now somebody asked me where I belong and I thought, I think it's very possible to feel a sense of belonging in many different places. And it's a different kind of belonging but that it's okay, I don't have to just pick one place. I can actually belong in lots of places and I come to really appreciate that. Yeah, I think another way of asking that is, you know, where do you feel is home? And I believe you can have many homes. It doesn't yes. just have to be one place. I think there's no question. I have my sense of my Africa home. Mm. Uh, when I'm back in my Chicago area, I mean, that feels, very nostalgic, very like at mm -hmm. home. I've lived in Indianapolis now 34 years, and that's a different kind of home. This is where I've raised my kids, but it's also from here that I've had my international life going on. So it's kind of like, it's a hub home. 
it's a home I come back to and I'm a local person here and then I get to go and so when I'm take trips and I'm back in the international community I feel incredibly at home even though I don't know the people there's something about that ethos that I know it I know it I don't know suburbia too well but Mm -hmm. I know what life is like in the international community so that's all good So you spoke a little about some of the difficulties and particularly around that tricky age of 13 and the the move that was involved at at that time. At what point did you realise that your, what we now know is your your TCK childhood, when did you realise that that was the thing that was having an impact on the way you were feeling about things? Uh, That's a very good question, and it's an important one because I believe language is really key to being able to work with our stories. I didn't have language for a long time until I was 39. So what happened is I went through high school. I went through college, university. I met my husband, and he was going to start going to medical school, so we got married, and... I was a nurse by then. When he was a senior, he was given a scholarship to go do an internship or elective, and we chose to go overseas. So we tried to go to Nigeria where my parents still were, and we couldn't get visas. So that was my first sense of like, excuse me, I was born there. You can't tell me, you can't tell me I can't come back. I mean, like, (laughs) it was just this huge shock. So we wound up in Liberia instead, and I had my first child there, so we're still keeping this generational, you know, out of the country birth thing happening. Then at Christmas, we got to go back from Liberia. They gave us a visa finally to go back and see my parents. So I went back, and suddenly I touched the Africa me of the Nigeria me, where everything was right. You know, oranges were green and market smelled right. The flies were good on the meat. Everything was good. Mm-hmm. And so it woke up this part I thought had put that I had put away. We came back to the States. We moved. And I went through a depression like I'd never seen before. And this person that felt strong and capable and all that. Um, so those were very hard years. I look back, I know now why. Because I had touched the place of my losses that I had never processed. Um, So, you know, life went on and I did better. We went back to Liberia to work. And then of course, Liberia had its issues. And so in the end, uh, we decided that um, they closed this. My husband was seconded to work with the government at their medical school and their hospital and those had all closed. So we would take some time off and figure out where life was supposed to go. And our daughter was going to start high school. So her grandma said, well, why don't you come stay with me? And then you won't have to switch high schools in a year. So because of my history, like, oh, that's kind of normal. But I had a massive reaction to it. And suddenly I was back in that depression. Mm -hmm. I could feel it. And I was angry. And yet my mind is saying this makes sense, but something else is going on. And I've learned to what I call listen to life. When there's something that doesn't jive. It doesn't make sense with reality. Um, 
what's really going on. So at that point, um, I thought, well, it must, she's leaving, this must have to do with my leaving. And my leaving was of course at six. So I started to journal and uh, I wasn't writing a book then, but the first time I started to write, I said I would write to my parents as the child. And suddenly the six-year-old child was alive and well in me. I could feel her. I could feel all those feelings from being sick. Mm. But the adult me had a pen now that she could capture the feelings were. And so I started to process things. And in the middle of that process is when I got an article my mother sent me by Dave Pollock and talked about third culture kids. And I thought, well, that sounds a bit like my story. And so that was kind of weird. But uh, then I also got a request to do a survey for my children on their educational stuff. Some, they were gonna have this conference and look at the educational issues. So I sent it back and Dave Pollock was organizing the conference. And I said, what are you gonna do for the adult TCK? I'm 39. Nobody ever did anything for me. And <laughs> so you're having this conference. I don't see anything for the adult. And so that was the beginning of everything that happened since then. So what was it like then when you got that article from your mother and there was this term, third culture kids, other people like you, what was the impact of knowing that you weren't alone with this? Well, I think it was, of course, a surprise. And it was a short article. And maybe every detail wasn't mine because, you know, I hadn't moved as much as some of the people. But there was something, of course, that resonated. And I thought they, it was a shock. I guess it's called the aha moment. Mm. You know, I didn't have the whole profile, but I thought, oh, my goodness. Am I really? And, of course, he was still talking about the current days. At that point, I think that the impact, the long-term impact of it for adults was barely beginning because they were mm -hmm. still studying just the kids. Uh, when this topic started, it was Dr. Yusin in India who had gone over there to study with her husband, John and Ruth Yusin went to study how businesses with different cultures you know, would interface and they realized that they made this kind of culture between themselves that was different from the Indian culture or the American culture, but it was one in which they worked. And then she noticed that the kids who, she didn't study the Indian kids, that would have been interesting too, but the expat kids, particularly the Americans at that point, um, who were growing up in this had different characteristics than the kids that she taught in her university back in the States. And when Dave Pollock, so she began to study them. And when Dave Pollock had gone to Kenya to work um, in the 70s, he was working by an international school. And he also, as a house father actually, and he also realized there were these different characteristics. So they were looking at the kids who were doing it at the time, but not necessarily assuming that there was a long-term impact. Mm. So, so when I read it, you know, it's kind of like, well, that was way back there. But here I am doing this journaling and realizing how profoundly uh, it had affected my life in the long term. And when I went to the conference, that's when I thought, oh, it's not just then. This experience 
is part of my essence. It's part of everything that has shaped me. And in particular, of course, what I was touching when I was doing my journaling were the losses. I had, because of the goodness of my life and how much I loved so much about it, I think it felt um, somehow not fair or like to say that there was anything hard about it would be, you couldn't have both the good and the bad. I didn't understand you could live in paradox then. And so it would be it would be to discount it. If I said there was something negative for me, then I would be discounting the good. And how, how could I discount the good? Because I love the good. So it was a really important thing in the process for me to understand that my story could have both riches and then it was because of the riches actually that the losses are so much. If I didn't love Nigeria, I wouldn't have minded leaving it. Mm-hmm. You know? If I didn't love my family, I wouldn't have minded. But when I was journaling at 39 and I started to write about the night I left Nigeria, I cried as if my whole world had died. And that's the first time I knew it did die that day. Mm-hmm. I never had my trees again. I never had the friends, but nobody died. So what do you do? You know, and besides, I want to see my grandma. So, you know, you've got that. And then when I was journaling later about my parents leaving for the four years. I began, I touched a grief that was like, I had just gotten a phone call that all six of them, my four siblings and my two parents had been killed in a car accident. And I realized that was the day my family died because we were never again, six kids and two parents. So I think learning to first to acknowledge the losses was huge for me and I and that was in the context of the story and then like I said that I could have permission to say that even the losses were part of the good in a certain sense or because of the good but even if it wasn't losses are losses however they come and even if there's good ahead you know um, but that it didn't negate the beauty of what I had also experienced. That for me was a critical place. Mm-hmm. It's a time of um, learning and discovery for you. So I'm going to ask, you'd heard of David Pollock because of the article and, and you mentioned the conference. How did you get into a conversation with him that then led to the book, Third Culture Kids Growing Up Among Worlds? which I'm sure many of my listeners will be familiar with or have read. (laughs) Well, that's a great question. I think first I met him then, somehow I went to that conference. It was going to be in Quito. I still don't even quite understand or remember how I got there. (laughs) But when I was doing the journaling and I got this thing and I wrote back, what are you doing for the adult? I said, I'm 39, I'm trying to figure out my story. If you want to see it, maybe it'll help you. I mean, I wasn't going to show it to anybody. You know, it's very personal journal, but I was mad. So I said, maybe I'm the only one who's ever felt like this and blah, blah, blah. Um, So he wrote back very kindly. He said, I don't think you're the only one. Um, I'd love to see what you're writing. And so um, I sent it to him. And then he sent me back a letter from a therapist that he'd asked what were the two things or what did she deal with the most when she was counseling TCKs. And she said, comfort, they have a lack of comfort 
and they have a lack of a sense of personhood. Like they don't really know who they are. Well, I, the personhood thing I couldn't get right away. But when I got the word comfort, all of a sudden then I started to cry again. I thought, because I didn't even know what I was writing. I was just writing the feelings. And I thought, I think that I had a lot of encouragement in my life, but I didn't have comfort and they're very different. That people would always tell me all the good things and they were always right, okay, fine. But nobody ever said to the six-year-old, it's okay to miss your mommy. It was more like, oh, just think we're gonna do this tomorrow, we're gonna do that. And yeah. a lot of kids don't have any mommy, so just be glad you have a mommy and you know, you'll see her again and all that sort of stuff. So that was a huge word that I worked with for a while. But anyway, somehow I wound up in this conference in Quito. <laughs> I think I didn't quite say that. And um, so I met Dave, in fact, he was on the airline. I sort of had seen a picture and I kind of went up and I said, are you Dave Pollock? So the conversations began then. And the other conversation, they had the second conference then um, in, um, oh, I said Quito, we were in the Philippines the first time. Manila was the first conference. Then in Quito was the time that I did my first talk. And at that conference, Norma McCaig had come. Norma was the person who made up the term global nomads, but she was convinced that this wasn't just a story for missionary kids. She was a business kid and she'd met lots of people who'd grown up in this way in different, what we call sectors, whether they were military, business, um, even personal, but somehow in the story. And so uh, she didn't like being called a kid. That's why she called it global nomads. Cause she said, you know, it's anybody who's got whatever. So we we're all figuring out the language, but we used to have the most fabulous discussions. And she she had the first couple of global nomad conferences, and they would come there. But somehow by phone, and you know we'd get together whether in D.C. or Norma came to my house or Dave was there, whatever it was. And the whole thing is, what are we talking about? Because now it's kind of a defined topic, but it wasn't then. Sometimes I think, did we really not know that? Did we really not know that at the beginning? Because I went back to, you know, I, I don't go through all the things, but, you know, we talked, talk, 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 and then somebody would come up with like the term hidden immigrant or um, these things that have just become part of it. And I thought, did we really not even know about hidden loss and grief and all that? But those were the things that at the beginning people were rejecting actually, because they were saying it's so negative and, one thing that's been very interesting to me about COVID is all these issues about grief, unresolved grief, but hidden loss and the reasons that we have unresolved grief, because sometimes we don't even know what we've lost, are completely relevant to this COVID time. Because the whole world went into transition. We all went into loss and we don't even know how to define it. And I've seen more articles on grief in the last few months than ever in my life before. Whereas at the beginning, people, there was a kind of a bit of rejection about why are you talking about grief so much? It's so negative. And I said, well, what they said, why don't you talk about the positive? I said, well, I know the positives or, you know, that my book, what became Letters Never Sent was what that journaling turned into. Mm. And um, why don't you talk about it positively? And so I tried and I thought, no, that's not the story. I know the positives, everybody knows. But you know, what I need to look at is the losses weren't even negatives, they were painful, 
but they still shape us. And how do we learn to deal with them? And how do we learn to process them? It actually becomes a life skill too. So anyway, it's been interesting to see these last few months that all of a sudden hidden loss, unresolved grief have become realities for many, even if um, they don't even have the language themselves, but you can see it happening. Yeah, those things that we are so familiar with. <laughs> yes. But let me say something, though. I, I've heard somebody send an article around how TCKs are much more competent to deal with these things because they're used to it. But there's a part of me, when I read the article, I thought, no, this was always the problem, that we just went on. And they were saying, we just learned we can go on. But that was the point. I didn't know how to say goodbye. I didn't know how to process the losses as they happened. And so then they became cumulative. And so I think that even when they were talking about, oh, their kids were doing fine because they were used to moving. I thought, yeah, but talk to me in 20 years. <laughs> when they've learned to detach, they've learned to put the curtain down like I did and we're fine. But somewhere back there, they never, if you don't process it, when it happens, it will catch up with you. And often it comes as it did for me in depression or anger or anxiety, uh, displaced grief. You know, I'm mad for everybody else. I can take up righteous causes. I got into a lot of, you know, social justice things because it was fair to be mad for everybody else, but I was fine. Those goodbyes, I mean, my moves were back in the day pre-internet as well so when we moved from one destination to another the only way at that time to stay in touch with people was with you know handwritten letters or snail mail right do you think that those moves would be you know how, how do you think technology now impacts those moves because people have much a much easier way of staying in touch with people, even if they're not physically with them anymore? That's a great question. And I think there's some good research um, on some of this. Alice Wu has done a lot of work with how does technology affect the experience? What was interesting to me was the, yes, you can stay in touch better. But then in some ways, it keeps some kids from going ahead because they only want to stay in touch with the past. Yeah. And so they can run to their rooms and do that and not get involved in the new place. But also some say that I feel so sad because when I visit my friends, they're still together yeah. and I'm not with them. Now in COVID time, we're all doing the Zoom thing. So maybe that yeah. will be different. But it certainly has changed some things. But on the other hand, it's also uh, complicated some things because maybe you can have a lot of relationships. Do you have them deeply? Hopefully, you can still have deep relationships, certainly on internet. But I think the full impact of how life is with virtual reality and the issues of place. Place is still an important part of who we are because what we can do in certain places, whether it's the sports or the whole sense of belonging to place is another thing I've been thinking about 
because of some new research people are doing. Um, so just the very fact of place, whether you, like you say, you have the Alps out your window or if you have a desert is kind of a different sense of home and, and all these things. So there's a lot to be learned. And I think the biggest thing for me is that it's important for people to have a way to normalize their story. That the truth is when we have separation and loss, we will have grief, even if it's for a good reason. Mm. Even if you're going to go ahead and do the best thing in the world. You can't leave somebody or some place without some kind of loss. It may be big, it may be little, but this is also why I think Dave Pollock's raft of trying to talk about making a definitive goodbye, making sure that you are conscious goodbye, I guess, where before you leave, you try and reconcile your relationships. And you also try to affirm them, you know, um, say thank you, because that also touches the good places that your life has been. And that's important for us to say thanks. That's part of healthy living. And then saying farewell, because a lot of times we want to avoid the farewell. We think it'll make us cry. So we kind of ignore it and we just kind of jump over it. Um, but those things are important because until I understood my story, I didn't realize that when I was going to say goodbye to people, I didn't like them anymore. Mm. I just think, I don't know why we're friends. You know, she's so annoying about this, that, or something <laughs> else. And I was trying to disconnect even before my parents went. You know, I can't wait for them to leave. Well, kids do that in high school. That's what senioritis is, you know, when you're getting ready to move. But for me to consciously try to stay connected until the end, not to play that little game. So I'll say to my friends, I tend to pull away, but if you feel me doing that, you know, please call me on it because really you are a good friend. I don't want to do that. And let's make a lunch date just before I leave for something <laughs> so that we say goodbye. And then to think destination. Yes, you need to think ahead, but a lot of times we think ahead and we skip all the other parts of saying goodbye. And when we say goodbye well, we can say hello well. Um, and that can be different because we're not going with so much unfinished business. We can still have grief. Grief is a process. It takes time. Yeah. But, um, we don't have like the regrets because the worst of it is to get on the airplane and realize you've just blown. You've left in a big fight with somebody. You've left this. And you want to run back and say, you know, and I have to work on this. You know, I've done a lot of traveling in the last years. And the night before I'm going to go, I can easily fuss about the garbage or something with my husband. And he'll say, is that really about the garbage or is that because you're leaving tomorrow? And then I say, what's well, the garbage? But I know it's really not. Oh, that sounds very familiar. <laughs> it's a habit. Coming back to um, David Pollock and the, um, the the book that's affectionately known as the Bible in the, the TTK world, when when the book was originally published, which I think was back in the late nineties, ninety nine, I believe. Right. What impact did you hope that your book was going to have? Okay. Well, let me go back. I sorry, I did sidetrack my brain. Um, to how I got to writing the book with him. So we had all these fabulous discussions and we would talk, talk, talk on the phone. And one time I called him, 
I said, Dave, I'm starting to see some of the material. He was the one going around the world and he was sort of developing the profile. And so he was going to schools and I saw a couple of articles, one in Wall Street Journal, one someplace else. I said, you need to write your stuff because you're gonna be quoting the people quoting you if you don't get it written first. And he said, I don't have time. And then I heard myself say, well, I'll help you. I thought, how hard could this be? He's got the profile. Well, mm-hmm. it became a seven-year project because when we sent it first off to Intercultural Press, um, they said, well, you have to explain it. We're an academic press. You don't just describe it, not just what is it, but why did it happen? And so part of the process was trying to understand what he had defined, like, why do we have delayed adolescence? You know, what does it make that happen? And so I have a why mind. And so between the two of us, we, you know, think, talk with Norman McKay also. And um, I think the thing we hoped above all was to normalize the story, to give language um, to the people who were living it, like you and me, but also to the people who were trying to work with them. That was some kind of this, when the editor said, well, who are you writing for? I said, everybody. And he said, well, you can't write for everybody. I said, well, everybody needs to know. And uh, <laughs> he said, well, I said, because the teachers need to know. And the, you know, the so many people I had talked to had gone to therapists who hadn't a clue about the topic. And so they're treating them from a very, almost a pathological perspective. You know, what's mm-hmm. wrong with you instead yeah. of, you know, what's your story? And I just thought everybody needed to know, but in particular families, because for me, I needed to know, but when I was able to talk with my mother about it, it opened a whole conversation with us. And when I had sent her what I was journaling, I said, I'm not blaming you, but I just want you to know how it was for me, you know, and that kind of stuff. So that was some sort of a, a hope that, um, I don't have a linear mind, I have a very uh, splat mind. And I just thought, well, if we throw it all out, there's something will happen. But, uh, you know, in my vision, families could talk together, teachers could talk together, HR people would understand the people's stories. And so that was, that was sort of the goal, just to help people understand. Because language and concepts to me are absolutely freeing. If I can work in language and concepts, I can get somewhere. If I only have feelings, I'm stuck in the feelings mm-hmm. and I don't know how to navigate through them. I don't know where I'm going. Even with COVID, I had just moved um, and I had a lot of feelings that were similar then to when we came back from Africa or, um, you know, when I was a child and things. But this time I could say, what is it? And I thought, well, it's grief because I've lost my physical house of 33 years. I can't have my kids here like I thought I was going to do. I've lost my whole way of life because I can't travel. And so instead of being mad at myself, I could give myself permission to go through it and to say, okay, this is grief. What are the losses, you know, and to process. So I think for me, once people understand, they also can talk to each other. Uh, Mm -hmm. You can and you can think, oh, I'm not alone. I, I, there is a place I belong. I belong. Belonging is about being understood too. It's not just yeah. a physical place. 
And there are people, maybe they won't understand me and I don't understand their story either because whatever, but then the human soul, even when our stories are different, there are feelings that can be shared that came in different ways. And the more I understand my story, the more people I can connect with in all kinds of stories, as well as my own similar story. But see, I'm old now, so it, it gets better when you get older. <laughs> you have less to go. <laughs> uh, and in that, you mentioned about COVID and, you know, not being able to see family at, at this time of year and that. Um, we touched just briefly before we started recording about um, Christmas traditions and important mm -hmm. traditions. So, so tell me about that. Well, I think that one of the things I try and say to parents is you need to have portable traditions because traditions are what give identity to you as a group, but particularly to you as a family. When I grew up in Kano, we had very strong traditions for how life worked at Christmas particularly because we didn't have our extended family in the local community. I think there were, we always invited the single people in our community to Christmas Eve supper. And then we got to pick one gift and you wanted to pick the gift that, you wanted to get a good enough gift. You touch all the packages trying to figure out which one was, you didn't want your best gift because if you had your best gift, you would really spoil it. But so we had so much energy to you know, pick that one gift. And then you do that and then go to sleep. And in the middle of the night, you knew that the students from my dad's school were gonna come and sing. That would be like the carol. So you, you went to sleep anticipating being woken up by this wonderful you know, sound that began Christmas. And then could you, you know, we'd hope we, my mother would let us stay up. Usually she didn't, it was too early. And then we'd start the stockings and we always had one Ghanaian couple we had for Christmas breakfast and we had bacon because we couldn't afford it the rest of the year, but we had bacon on Christmas. And then we would go to church and have the Christmas pageant. And my father's bathrobe was always one of the shepherd's outfits. I mean, it was always up there, you know. And then we came home and then we had our own private dinner and then we had the packages people sent us from the States. So that was the one time of the year we got Cracker Jack and bubble gum mm -hmm. and all these wonderful things, you know, yeah. that we didn't have. We didn't care about the clothes or the toys. We just loved all this other stuff. And then in the mm -hmm. evening we met with the other expats and it smelled, it was harmattan time. So there was a smell of Christmas that was all the dust that was in the air. I'm sure it was terrible for our lungs, but it smelled like Christmas. <laughs> when I came back to the States and then we had, um, uh, you know, snow, I thought this just is not Christmas, but we still had my mother's breads. We still had the cooking that she did. We still had then the family. So we had to read reimagine it but taking the pieces that we could and so to this day as a grandmother now myself we have a very strong that we still have a christmas breakfast that's the hallmark of our time and i still make the same breads i make the same everything that i can and then we've integrated some of my husband's dutch heritage and i make some banquet that's always what we have and we do it a very specific way and this year we can't do it and so we're back to reimagining. My whole plan should be gathering on Wednesday. And then we always have Thanksgiving, and then we get the Christmas tree up, then we do Christmas on Saturday. 
and then everybody can go to their other in-laws for the real Christmas. So we call this pretend Christmas. This is Grandma Van Rieken's pretend Christmas. And it is so specifically traditional and we all know how it works. And to say we can't do it this year has been an enormous sorrow and loss. So we're trying to figure out what can we do. And so I'm still doing my baking. I'm gonna ship some of my food to Chicago. They don't know that yet, but anyway, I'm gonna send them my rolls so they can put it on their table. And we have the you know, cloth that we usually use. And I'm, we're gonna to go to one family at a time, the local kids, and then we'll do a virtual Christmas. But I've said to them, let's try for the spring, see if we can, we won't have the stockings this time. Maybe we can do stockings in April, I don't know. So it's been stockings. working hard to what can we preserve of portable traditions because we can't do it the same way, but we can take pieces. So that's why for me, I say, you know, what is it that you still recognize is, yeah, this is still part of who we are and part of our being community and belonging to each other. So we're going to see how it goes this year, but I know there will be actually a lot of grief. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be a strange one this year in terms of not being able to um, see people as, as we normally would. Yeah. It's funny, as you were talking, I was thinking about my own um, thoughts about Christmas. And because I lived in a mixture of warm and cold climates, mostly warm, I have to say, um, growing up, that my thoughts around Christmas seem to be being shaped very much by the few years I had in England. So I was thinking of Christmas being cold and snow and Father Christmas and all that. And then later on in my teenage years, when I was living in Perth in West Australia, where it's very hot, uh, Christmas just has a completely different fit mm -hmm. um, feel to it because you, you're more likely to be at the beach. Um, but I can remember my parents, who I grew up with, um, sort of held on to the traditional family Christmas that we had no matter where we were so even if it was 40 degrees heat we'd still be having the the roast turkey and all the trimmings <laughs> it's nice yes yeah, so and when we went to Liberia we were on the beach there and of course it was very hot at Christmas time and the people there had a tradition of roasting hot dogs on the beach on Christmas Eve which was very strange but it became part of the new tradition. And so I think another thing with global families, you can add pieces that kind of represent your story. Um, mm. I did try the hot dogs for a couple Christmases, but boiling them on the stove doesn't have the same feel as sitting on the beach. Because uh, it wasn't the hot dog, it was kind of the ambience. I thought, well, that's probably gonna go, but we would roast hot dogs in the summer sometimes when we take family vacations. But, you know, I think that is part of it too, though, is like we still sing in Liberia, they had a song, it's Green, Green Christmas. And um, there was a woman who had, you know, written this wonderful song and she'd get up every year and she'd dance to the song and she liked a green, green Christmas because that's, of course, what, you know, not for the snow. So now, even though we're in Indianapolis, we want our kids, our grandkids to know about the other parts of us. So we always get out the recording and then I stand up and I do the dance with, you know, I like a green, green Christmas. And they laugh at me and that's okay. Don't remember. Don't remember. Nice. 
<laughs> As we are almost at Christmas, this this feels like an appropriate place to um to end this podcast episode. But before we do, there's one question that I like to ask all of my guests to end on on a positive note, which we're already at. But would you like to tell me what you think is one of the best things about being a TCK? Absolutely. I have met people from countless countries, countless ethnicities, countless races, who are not only my friends, but they add so much to my life because we start our life in the essence of being human. And culture is the thing that we add. As humans, we all want to relate to each other. We all have feelings. We all have creative places and they come out differently. And culture is the way, well, because of those things, we have needs. We need to know somebody. We need to be known and to know. We need to have a place to express our emotions. We need to have a place to think. And culture actually is a way that we seek to meet those basic needs. We all figure out how do we say hello? How do we greet? What's an appropriate way that we can express emotions? And I have a whole collection of instruments, musical instruments, because every culture makes music, but they do it in different ways. And yet they only do it four ways. They do it with string, percussion, wind, and I think string percussion wind and uh, brass kind of thing. Anyway, mm -hmm. and every culture you, know, you might have seeds in the gourds. You might have, uh, I mean, I love it. And so that's one of my displays is all the musical ways we do stuff. I feel that my life has been so rich because underneath what, you know, might seem to be differences, there is this place where you connect with people who externally may be so different from you, but there is this human connection and you can learn and you can grow and you can uh, realize that if you start with likeness, you also can appreciate uniqueness because nobody's the same, even though we can connect in these places of joy and sorrow and all these things. So I feel like more than the geography I've seen, I've had certainly wonderful opportunities to see the world and the beauty of the world and all these things because I've traveled a bit doing work with this topic. It's just the people. And when I get there, people say to me when I'm going to travel, my friends in Indianapolis who aren't so used to traveling, well, who do you know there? I said, well, nobody yet. And they said, well, aren't you afraid to go? I said, no, I'll know them as soon as I get there. <laughs> <laughs> nobody yet. I love that. Because everybody has such a wonderful story. Everybody has an interesting story, whether they're TCKs or not. Uh, people are interesting to me and stories are interesting. And my life is just incredibly rich um, because of that. And also because I think that I was gifted with a strong foundation. And so it's a place that I want to help families think, you know, if you can help build a strong foundation for your kids. Uh, I mean, since I work with kids a bunch, mm -hmm. then they can fly and they can know where they come home to roost because we all need a roosting place, mm. but you can have courage to fly. So for all of those who are listening, I want to say that um, 
there's also hope in the journey because for a lot of years, I didn't understand my depression. I didn't understand my anxiety. I didn't understand my anger, but I didn't understand there was grief underneath it mm. because those are all expressions. And once I was not afraid to see the whole story, then I could use the riches of it better. But if you are afraid to explore, um, then you you can't use it all. But sometimes, you know, for me, it was journaling. For other people, it's it's art. For people, you know, it can be talking to somebody like you, Jen, who's a coach or a therapist. But there are ways to use all of us. I mean, all of us, all the pieces with me. And that's one of the things that I, I recognized one day I was in Afghanistan and a bunch of goofy things happening. And I thought, my life felt like it all came together that we were on little airplanes like I went to school on and I was in the international world and the, you know, uh, community I'd grown up with and all these different things. And I thought my life just came together here. I think I was born to do this. And I thought I was born to do this and we're each given our story so that we can use it well. And it's not the same story, but, um, that's why I do what I do. I believe we can all grow and we can all celebrate and we can all mourn and we can all just be appreciative of how rich the story is. And part of that richness is learning how to mourn and to, to grow from the sorrow as well as to grow from the joy. Mm -hmm. As you say, we are all unique, but particularly being TCKs, we have this common thread that, um, you know. That's right. That's right. I, I want to say one other thing about that. I think sometimes there, part of my acceptance came when I think before I understood I had a story and a group, it's always like, why don't people understand me? And after I recognized that there was a group of people that really do understand me, I don't have to explain myself to you, even if our details are different. Mm. That emotional story of the separation, the loss, the chronicity of this, whatever it is, the cultural dissonance. When I don't have to explain that, uh, then I feel I can belong. But after I finally realized that and I came back to Indiana for something, I realized that I don't understand my neighbor's story either. He's an engineer with Lucent technology. I have no idea what engineers with Lucent technology do, but we can be friends on a different level, but I can't, why would he understand my specific story if I don't understand his specific? So we can relate as neighbors, we can relate as this, but I can't demand that he understands every detail about what I do when I go someplace. And I don't have to understand every detail. We can be friends at a different realm. And then I kind of realized nobody understands everybody, but we do have a group where we can be understood and understand. And from there we grow. It doesn't have to be exclusive, but it is a place that's part of the solidity, I think, of the foundation of knowing I'm not alone. And there is a wide group of people that understand me. Yeah, we're not alone and that unspoken level of understanding is is a beautiful thing it is 
Ruth, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me and thank you for what you're doing. And I know you're part of spreading the word and normalizing it. And I appreciate so much um, what you're doing. And I know that many, many lives will be changed because they find out they do belong through the work that you're doing. So thank you, Jen. My pleasure. And on a final note, very final, just like to wish you a Merry Christmas and to our listeners as well. <laughs> Thanks, Ruth. And you too. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to People Like Us. If you'd like to join an online community full of people like us, hop over to Facebook and search for People Like Us. You'll find my group and you're very welcome to join us.